What is God like? Ever asked that question? It's actually a really important question to ask, isn't it? And, and if you come to any passage of Scripture, one question you might want to ask yourself is, what is this passage of Scripture showing me about God? What is God like? Uh, it's an important question to ask um, because when we know what God is like, our prayers will be more relevant. When you know who you're speaking to, we know what their character is, then you'll know how best to speak to them, won't you? Um, people think that learning to pray is about learning techniques or methods or the right phraseology, and you sort of pick up one of the phrases people use in church, but, but actually learning to pray is learning about God. It's learning who you're talking to. Um, it's important to know what God is like because our Christian faith is basically faith in God, isn't it? <coughs> faith in Jesus Christ, faith in his Son, faith in what God has done. It's trusting in him. And so it's important we know who we're trusting in. It's important we know what he is like. And the more we know what he is like, the more we will trust him and the more we'll be sure and confident in our faith. The more we'll keep going and know that following God, the God of Jesus Christ, is better than following any other gods. And the more we know what God is like, the more we'll know what it means to live like God's. Um, there's those bands people used to wear, isn't it? WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's a great question to ask, but you need to know what Jesus would do. <laughs> um, you need to know what God is like um, and pick up on those sort of characteristics as we learn to live our lives for him. To know what God is like is really important, and it's a question we could ask of any passage, so maybe this is a bit of a cheat for an introduction <laughs> to this particular sermon. But actually, as we come to this passage, we come to the turning point between the story of Elijah and Elisha. Um, so in chapter 2, the bit before we read, and we, we did a sermon on this um, a couple of months, a few months ago, um, Elijah is taken up into heaven, and he literally passes on the mantle to Elisha. And he drops his cloak, the um, King James Version calls it his mantle, and Elisha picks up the mantle. He passes on the mantle to Elisha. Um, Elisha was Elijah's um, disciple, if you like. He was the one that God had told Elijah to call so that he would take on and carry on the work of Elijah. And what was the work of Elijah? Well, at a time in Israel, there was a great battle going on for the spiritual hearts and minds of the people. Um, Ahab and his wife Jezebel had introduced Baal worship. And people were going for Baal worship, and all those that worship Yahweh, all the prophets, were being um, systematically destroyed, systematically killed. And yet Elijah stood up to them. There was that great um, competition, wasn't there? Um, where the prophets of Baal had to call down fire from their God on the sacrifice, and it didn't come. And Elijah called down fire on his sacrifice from God, and it did come. And um, Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed. Um, and then ran off into the wilderness. That was a key turning point. Although for Elijah, it felt like it was a victory that didn't go anywhere. God said, actually, no, I have a plan, and gave him the plan, part of which was to call Elisha to follow him. And so now we reach in the story of one and two kings a point in Israel where, where things are beginning to turn around. Baal worship is beginning to, to wane. Its influence is beginning to change, and um, the worshippers and people of God are beginning to grow. So, um, if we look at chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, um, Ahab has died, and a new king is on the throne, King Joram, his son. Um, now, we're told that King Joram did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it says that in verse 2, but not quite as bad as his father and mother. So, this is an improvement. 
Let's look at the positives. <laughs> um, so, for example, he got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. In other words, Joram, although he was far from perfect, although he still continued in many of the evil ways of the kings of Israel, he was moving away from Baal worship. Things were changing. Things were on the move. And you remember Elijah's great complaints, which wasn't quite true. He complained, I'm the only one left, God. They've killed all the other prophets. And God said, actually, Elijah, that's not quite right. There are thousands left that still worship me, that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But Elijah felt all alone. But what happens now is, as, um, as we see Elijah go up into heaven, we, we're told again and again in chapter 2 that the, the company of prophets for the different towns came out to say goodbye to Elijah. In other words, now, um, got to move things on so that now are companies of prophets in each town, in each city. As we go through the story of Elisha again and again, Elisha's not a lone figure like Elijah Elisha's got groups of people around him, a company of prophets around him. And a lot of the miracles and a lot of his dealings are with those company of prophets. Um, things are moving on. God's people, those who are committed to him, are growing or expanding. This is a time of change. This is a time of renewal for Israel, going back to God. And in a sense, also, at this time, we see more miracles. As Elijah's taken up to heaven, Elisha says to him, I want double your spirits. Elisha was spiritually ambitious. And Elijah says, well, if you see me taken up into heaven, then you'll get double my spirits. And he sees Elijah taken up into heaven, and so he gets double his spirits. And so the number of miracles seems to multiply and increase. Um, Elijah did some amazing miracles. Elisha seems to do far more. Um, <coughs> this is a time of renewal. This is a time of change. This is a time of God's work, God's power coming into Israel, renewal coming to Israel. And yet the pressure to worship false gods is still there. The worship of Baal may still be on the wane, and yet Israel still has the golden calves that King Jeroboam set up in Bethel, rather than worshiping the Lord, the true God of Israel. And it's Elisha's task to show people what God is really like. It's Elisha's task to show them that the God of Israel the God they've been called to worship, the God that rescued them from Egypt all those centuries before, is the God they should stick with. Because this is the God of life. This is the God of blessing. And so as Elisha's ministry starts out, um, we're told in these first few chapters, and it goes on, the miracles go on, but in, in chapter 2 um, and chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see seven miracles that Elisha does. And these miracles are amazing miracles. They see God doing amazing things for lots of different types of people. But all of them show us that God is a God who long, longs to bless. A God of life. And a God of abundance and generosity and grace. So let's, let's go through those miracles. We're going to we go through at some speed. Um, and some we'll look at in slightly more detail than others. But let's start with the first one. This is one that um, Pam read to us earlier on. Um, Jericho's waters restored to life. You see that in chapter 2, verse 19 onwards. It says, the people of the city said to Elisha. Now, what's really important to spot here is which city. Okay? Um, and if you go back, you'll see that um, this is just after Elisha's um, seen Elijah go up into heaven. And he's come back across the River Jordan. And he meets with a company of prophets that had stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Where were they from? Well, Elijah's last stop before he went across the Jordan was Jericho. Not surprising, because Jericho's by the Jordan. 
And so the city that's talked about here, um, the people of the city are the people of Jericho. And that's really important. Why is it important? Because Jericho was a city under curse. Jericho was a city of God's judgment on the wickedness and the evil of the people that were in the land before the Israelites. Do you know the story? Joshua comes into the promised land. He crossed over the River Jordan in a miraculous way, just as Elisha had crossed over the River Jordan in a miraculous way, um, only just now in chapter 2. And the people there are around waiting for the city, and they, they know that Jericho is the first big fortress they've got to defeat. And they're wondering how on earth they're going to do it. It's all shut up. The walls are high. There seems no way to break in. And the angel of God appears to Joshua and tells Joshua to do his really weird thing, march around the city for seven days, one day, once, once each time, do it in silence, blow some, blow some horns. And then on the seventh day, do it seven times, blow some horns, shout a lot, and all the walls will come crumbling down. And he does that. And afterwards, Joshua puts a curse on the city. And he says, anyone who builds his city will lay the first stone at the cost of his first son and the last stone at the cost of his second. The city was cursed. It was there derelict for centuries as a symbol and a sign to Israel of what God had done to the wicked people that lived in the land before Israel. But not long before Elijah and Elisha, um, we're told that a guy called Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. If you look at 1 Kings 16, 34, it says this, In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. The curse was real. Joshua's words were fulfilled. This is all done, as Joshua had said. There's a sense that Jericho was a city under curse. And now the people of Jericho come to Elisha and say, look, our town is well situated. Jericho, some people say, is the oldest city in history. <laughs> people obviously thought this was a good spot. It's near the Jordan. It's um, a trade route into Israel. It's a good spot, they say, but we've got this problem. The water's bad. The land isn't growing. And they come to Elisha. They come, the first people to come to the one who had been appointed to follow on from Elijah. And they come to him and say, Elisha, can you sort this out for us in the name of your God? And Elijah does. He says, get a new bowl, put some salt in it. And they do so. And he passes the salt at the source of the water. And the water is made pure and clean. And so things can grow again. Jericho is no longer a city under curse, but a city under blessing. It's no longer a city cursed by death, but a city blessed by life. God turns the curse into a blessing because the people <coughs> come to Elisha. The people come to God's man. The people turn to the true God of Israel and put their trust in him. God is a God of blessing, turning cursing to blessing. God is a God of life, turning death into life. But did you catch the second story? This doesn't sound very positive, does it? The one that comes immediately next. Um, after that, that's Elisha, we're told, goes up to Bethel. So it's interesting, isn't it? The guy that set up 
that Jericho came from Bethel. There's links here. There's a lot more links, though. He goes up to Bethel, and these boys, um, these children, I think in your version, um, the old NIV, it says young men, doesn't it, or something? Actually, the Hebrew, it actually says boys, it's actually children. They come out, and they mock um, Elisha. They say, go away, baldy! I don't know, some of you might be feeling more sensitive about this than others. <laughs> we don't know why Elisha was bald. It may be just that he was bald because he was old or bald because he went bald young. Or it may be that it was, there was a habit of prophets to shave their heads like monks do today. We don't know. But obviously, he was bald. And these children were incredibly rude to him. And Elisha calls down a curse and these bears come out of the woods and they maul 42 of the children. What on earth is going on here? Well, again, it's important that we notice which city this is. This is the city of Bethel. And in 1 and 2 Kings, the city of Bethel is particularly under God's curse. Why? We go on to chapter 3. It says um, of King Joram. Remember King Joram, Ahab's son? Going in the right direction, he's got rid of the, bowl, the stone of Baal. But it says, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. What were those sins? Well, if you know the history of Israel, um, after Solomon, when Israel was very powerful, it was very strong, it was very rich, it was very wealthy, it was a united kingdom, because Solomon had turned after other gods because of his many wives, God sent a judgment on Solomon and said, from your son will have ten of the tribes of Israel taken away from him. And so when Solomon dies, um, this guy Jeroboam, son of Nabat, comes up and um, he becomes king of the northern tribes of Israel. And they break away from the southern tribes. So you end up with Judah in the south, based around Jerusalem, and Israel in the north. And of course, um, God has said that everyone was to worship Israel in the same place. And the place that Solomon has set up is the temple in Jerusalem. And if you're King Jeroboam ruling in the north, what do you, you're watching people going and worship in Jerusalem, you're thinking, wait a minute, this isn't good. If I want to have people following me and um, loyal to Israel and not loyal to Judah, not going back to the, kings, the sons of David, I need to do something about this. And so Jeroboam did. But the problem was he was going against not the sons of David, but against the God of David. And Jeroboam set up in two places, in Dan and Bethel, golden calves and said to the people come and worship here worship the golden calves don't go to Jerusalem don't go to the temple and God sent a prophet to Bethel you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 13 he's called a man of God I'm not told his name and he cursed Bethel he said that these um altars of sacrifice to the golden calves will be brought down and destroyed with the bones of dead people. There'll be a curse upon this place. And yet the man of God didn't quite do what God told him. God told him to go there and come back and not have a meal with anyone. And yet someone lured him to have a meal with him. And because he did so, he got killed by a wild animal on the way home. A bit like the children here, being mauled by a wild animal. Do you see the connections? Bethel is a place, the centre 
of the false worship of Israel. Not the extreme false worship of worship of Baal, but the false worship that Jeroboam has set up. The golden calf worship. Is it any wonder that here in this place of false worship, the children of Bethel come out and mock the prophet of God and tell him to go away? The people of Bethel are turning away from the true God. They're turning after false gods. And so rather than receiving blessing like Jericho, the place that was under a curse, but now because it turns to God, receives blessing, Bethel, whose children tell Elisha to go away, receive a curse. And their children are mauled by bears. This is the most negative story in this whole section. And yet you see how it mirrors the previous story. God is a God of blessing. God is a God of life. But if we tell God to go away, if we mock God's people, then we find cursing and death. Well, that's the first two. Let's move on. Um, Miracle number three. This is chapter three. And this is quite a long chapter. You might notice that. And um, you might want to read it later on. It's quite an interesting story, um, especially if you're into battles and things. Um, So basically, King Joram, we're told, is um, taken over from his father, King Ahab. And um, Moab, which is a a small state on the edge of Israel, um, to the other side of the Jordan, um, they were, if you like, um, a state that were under Israel's power. They were client states. And and under Ahab, they had an agreement where they would um, basically send lots of um, sheep and flocks to Ahab, sort of to pay him off, like protection money. A bit like gangsters and protectionists, the way states operated in those days. And, um, and for that, they were protected by Israel and they wouldn't be invaded by Israel or anything else. They did that when King Ahab was in charge and um, King Ahab was a powerful king politically. Um, but Ahab's died, and it, a lot, as in often in the cases, this is a time that Moab thought, let's get out of this. We don't want to be paying all these sort of taxes to Israel anymore. It's a bit like Brexit, isn't it? We're going to be paying money to, to them. Let's, um, let's break away from them. And so Joram, this is a point where he's being tested. Will he hold power? And he, he gets an alliance with um, Judah to the south um, and um, Edom, um, which is, I think, slightly to the north of Moab. It's all around the same sort of place. And they get all the armies together and they go and attack Moab. But this is a, they're terrible generals because they march through the wilderness for seven days. And lo and behold, marching these massive armies through the wilderness for seven days, they suddenly realize that they're all dying of thirst. There's no water. Things are going terribly wrong. Joram turns and starts blaming God. Why has God brought us to this situation? But um, King Jehoshaphat of um, Judah, who we're told is a good guy, um, a real worshipper of God, says, well, don't blame God. Let's find out what God says. And so they call for Elisha. Joram wasn't a great king, but at least he called for Elisha. He called for help from the man of God. And Elisha says, tomorrow God will make it so that it will be pools of water in the wilderness and you'll have drinking for your army. And the next day they wake up and lo and behold, there's pools of water in the wilderness and everyone is able to drink and be refreshed and the army is saved from dying of thirst and this um, military disaster. But more than that, Moab look out and they see these pools of water in the wilderness and they see the sun as it rises, um, or somehow, anyway, they see the reflection of the water, and it looks like they're red pools. 
And they think, these are pools of blood. These three kingdoms have come out against each other. They come out as an alliance, but obviously they fought each other, killed each other, and there's blood all over the place. Let's go down and raid their camp. And so Moab comes charging down to raid the camp, but it's a bit like the charge of a light brigade. The armies are still strong, they're still powerful. Moab comes charging into the camp, and they're basically slaughtered. And Moab's on the run, and Moab is completely ransacked and destroyed. And then right at the end of the chapter, you get this very disturbing and strange episode. Moab's now brought back to just the one final city. And in verse 26, it says, The king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. It's quite a disturbing scene, isn't it? This king of Moab sacrificing his own son, his heir, in order to get the victory. He obviously thought that by sacrificing his son that the gods of Moab would help him and give him the victory against Israel. We might think, well, that seems to be what happens. Are those gods real gods? Is this the right way to go? Is this how you get victory? And it may be just that doing that sacrifice so um, motivated the troops of Moab that they had the energy and the strength to break through and defeat Israel. We don't know exactly what was going on. We don't know the mechanics of how this worked. We don't have to believe in the gods of Moab to think that it works. And yet we're told this story, I think, to remind us what the gods were like, the gods of the peoples around Israel were like. These weren't gods that generously and freely give life to people. In life, um, King Joram called for Elisha, and Elisha said, God will give you water. He didn't say you have to do anything. He didn't say you have to make any sacrifices. God will give you water. God will give you life in the wilderness. Like God gave life and water in the wilderness to Moses and the people of God then. God gave the victory freely. And yet the king of Moab, in order to get victory, thinks he has to sacrifice his own son. Do you see the contrast between the gods of the world and the God of the Bible? Gods that demand death and a God that gives life. That's the third miracle. Let's look at the fourth miracle quickly. I'll start going quicker now, because, partly because we did this one this morning in a bit more depth. Um, but the fourth widow is a poor widow. The fourth miracle is the beginning of chapter four. is a poor widow saved from the creditor. Um, suddenly we're now taken to this woman who is poor and has nothing. Suddenly from these great battle scenes, nations fighting against nations and clashing with each other, power forces and politics reigning supreme, suddenly we're taken to this very intimate, touching story. As I said, the company of the prophets were a very real thing. In Elijah's time, there were lots of people that were trying to follow God seriously. And one of these prophets has died. And he's left a wife. And the narrator gives us the words of the wife in chapter 4, verse 1. She comes to Elisha 
and she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. This woman, now a single mother, grieving her dead husband, all she has are these two children, and all her husband has left her is these debts. And the only way you paid off your debts in those days, you couldn't go file for bankruptcy. The way you dealt with it is you sold yourself or your children into slavery to pay the debts. And so she says, look, the creditor is coming and he's going to take away my two children. Do you feel the, the, the deep sadness, the sense of desperation in his widow and his woman? It's horrible, yeah. And yet she too goes to Elisha. She too goes to the man of God. And she tells him. And Elisha, who's just been dealing with kings in battles, responds to her and says, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she says, nothing. Nothing except one small jar of oil. And Elisha says, do this. Go round and ask all your neighbours for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Get as many as you can. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. And so he does it. Um, he's connecting the woman with the wider community. In Elisha, people aren't alone with God. People are part of a community with God. She wants her to go out and, and get the jars from the wider community, but then secret, they have to go into secret with her sons and start pouring the oil from this jar, and the oil just keeps flowing. They fill one jar, then another jar, then another jar, then another jar, until finally she says to her son, bring me another jar, and she says, no. the son says, no, there's none left, and then the oil stops. All the jars she collects are full. And she goes to Elisha, and Elisha says, go sell the oil, and pay your debts. <coughs> and note this, it says, and you and your sons can live on what is left. This is the God of grace. This is the God of generosity. This is the God of life. He's not the God just of generosity to big nations. He's not the God of generosity to the, to the municipal powers of Jericho that ask for a blessing on their water. He's the God of the widow. He's the God of compassion. He's the God of the small people. He's the God who brings good news to the poor. He's a God that brings blessing into a desperate situation. He's a God who brings life where there is death. And do you see the contrast with what's just gone on in chapter 3? In chapter 3, the king of Moab thinks that to get God on, his gods on his sides, he has to kill his son. And here, this woman is given back her sons. Not because she does anything, but because God is a God of grace and a God of life. 
Then the fifth miracle in chapter 4. Um, again, it's a longer story, and actually we're going to look at this one next week, so I'm not going to go into any depth on this one, but um, the story is of a woman who has no children and then is blessed by a son, and then the son dies, and Elisha brings a son back to life. Do you see the connections again? God is a God of life. Um, the king thought he could sac- have the sac- king of Moab had to sacrifice his son, but now this woman says, um, gets her son back, given to her back from death to life. God is a God of life. God is a God of blessing. And then the fifth, sixth miracle, um, which was one that... Um, Pam read to us, death in the pot. Um, do, you, do you get that story? So this is a time of famine. There's not much food around. The, the prophets are gathering together. They're, they're sort of having a bit of a conference. Um, and they, Elisha says, let's have a meal, let's have a stew. And so they collect lots of food for the stew. And, and one guy collects these dodgy plants. He hasn't checked it out properly. He obviously hasn't got his health and safety certificate right, whatever. Um, and he puts these dodgy plants in the stew. And they all start to eat in the stew. And they go, there's death in the pot. Obviously, they realized that what he's put in the stew was plants that you shouldn't put in. It's poison. And they cry out to Elisha, and Elisha simply says, get me some flour. Pours the flour in the stew, and the stew becomes good stew to eat. God turns a stew of death into a stew of life. God is a God of blessing. God is a God of life. And God is a God of abundance. This final miracle, the feeding of a hundred. Um, a man comes from Baal Shalshish. Remember, it's a time of famine. He's got 20 loaves. He thinks, oh, no, oh, bless Elisha. I'll give him these 20 loaves. And Elisha says, don't bless me. Remember, there's a sense of community again. Elisha's sort of trying to spread the load. Give the food to everyone. Give them to 100 men that are here. And a man says, how can I set this before 100 men? I think when he says 20 loaves, we're not talking about big loaves. We're talking about probably rolls. So we're talking about 20 rolls. So it's a fifth of a roll each. You can just about get away with that, can't you? It's not, not quite nothing, but it's not particularly satisfying. I'm sure if I gave my children a fifth of a roll for lunch, they would um, get very upset. <laughs> um, but um, Elisha says to the man, give it to the people to eat. And after some protest, the man gives it to the people to eat. And as Elisha says, God says, they will eat and have some left over. <laughs> God is a God of life. God is a God of generosity. God is a God of abundance. As we go through these stories of Elisha, I wonder if you're reminded of anyone else. Are you reminded of Jesus? Elisha, the name actually means God saves. And Jesus, the name means the Lord saves. More or less the same. Elisha is described as a man of God. But of course, Jesus is the one who is God become man. And you see some of the echoes of Jesus' miracles and Elisha's miracles. In some ways, Elisha's miracles in the Old Testament are closer to the ones that Jesus does in the New Testament than any others. Jesus' first sign, according to John's Gospel, was that he turned water into wine. He blessed that marriage ceremony, marriage party with wonderful wine, just as Elisha blessed that widow with lots of oil. Elisha fed 100. Jesus fed 5,000. With less, only five loaves. Elisha raised the son, Shunammite's son from the dead. Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus and other people from the dead. Jesus is like Elisha, but Jesus is greater than Elisha. 
Jesus more fully shows us what God is like. And Jesus is the one who turns the curse into blessing. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told that he came under that curse. So Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And yet God turned that curse into a blessing for us. We are forgiven because Jesus died. We have life because Jesus died. God doesn't call us to sacrifice our children. Rather, God gave his son that we might find eternal life. And not just extra life, but life in abundance. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. As we look at the God of the Bible, as we see what that God is like, are you encouraged to pray? To praise the God who is generous, the God of life, the God of abundance. Are you encouraged to trust more deeply and more fully? Not to go after other gods or false gods or to give up on the God of the Bible, but to trust in him as the one who will really bless you. And actually, will you become like God yourself? Will you be about blessing others and showing the generosity and kindness of God to others as well? Having the compassion of God? Do you know what God is really like?